0: Big news, everyone. My debut solo TV show that I executive produced, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness, debuts on Netflix this Friday, January 28th. If you could ever just do me a gigantic favor and set your reminder on your Netflix app, would appreciate it so much and just give it a little gorgeous gaze uh, this weekend can't wait for you to watch it i hope you all love it thank you so much for supporting getting curious and now let's get back to the show welcome to getting curious i'm jonathan van ness and every week i sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious on today's episode i'm joined by professor chris jackson where i ask him how major are volcanoes Welcome to getting curious. We are learning about something I've been very curious about for a long time. And this is one of our episodes where I'm just so jelly that you guys can't see how stunning our guest is. Welcome to the show, Chris Jackson, who is a geologist and an adventurer and is based at the University of Manchester. Welcome, Chris. How are you?
1: I'm great, Jonathan. Thank you. How are you?
0: Good. So I have a really random first question that I don't know if you've been prepped for, um, but I'm just going to ask it. Are you ready? (laughs) I am ready. (laughs) Have you or have you not seen
1: Dante's Peak? I have seen Dante's Peak. Exactly. What a relief. Otherwise, my professional credentials. (laughs) Yeah, no. I watched it even before I was interested in geology. It's that good. It's... So good. I mean, first of all,
0: Pierce Brosnan, you know, national treasure for you all over there, and you know, the United Kingdom. Um, but the reason why I ask is because that's probably like eighty-five percent of my knowledge about uh, volcanoes, and then of course, there's like five percent Pompeii, five percent Mount St. Helens, and then maybe like, and then like maybe like ten percent like Earth science in seventh yeah. grade. So. Okay. I'm scared. Uh, I revere a volcano. I need to know more. This is also kind of like meant to be in our series of like how to survive and, you know, X.
1: Apocalypse.
0: Exactly. Or, you know, in this case, a volcano eruption. So first and foremost, uh, you're a literal geologist. So can you just tell us a little bit about like how, well, actually, no, I can't even go there first. I have to get even more basic if you can believe it. Hard hitting question number two.
1: What is a volcano so a volcano is a landform uh, you know a, a superficial landform something we can observe at the earth's surface which is constructed from um solidified magma so this is uh, molten rock which has made its way all the way to the surface of the earth has been erupted to form lava and has crystallized and become hard rock and that is what a volcano is
0: Okay, wait. Does that help? (laughs) Well, I mean, all I heard was magma, and then all I could hear was uh, Austin Powers or Dr. Evil going
1: liquid hot magma. That's a good place to start. That's a good place to start, though. Yeah.
0: So literally, the volcano itself is formed from, like, lava coming up, and then it, like, forms a mountain? Basically,
1: that's it. You pass the class.
0: Well, that's the buried lead that I didn't know. I didn't realize that the mountain itself was literally former cooled lava. So does that mean that like the hole that lifts up the lava that then makes the volcano, does that mean that all volcanoes start
1: flat? Yes, basically. So volcanoes, if I was to ask you to draw a volcano, you draw something which is triangular, looking a bit like the pyramids in Egypt sticking above the ground. But they're normally quite old volcanoes that have been constructed from many, many, many eruptions. So during the first eruptions you have from a, a, a vent where the magma is coming to the Earth's surface, you'll build up a very small cone that will get bigger through time. So um, we have in our head this beautiful mental image of a volcano being this big, tall, pointy thing forming mountains, which they sometimes are, but, but they obviously are born. <laughs>
0: I really did not even see this coming so early in the podcast. I Sorry. thought I knew, but I didn't even know. So, okay. So you just said vent.
1: Yeah. What's a vent? Is that like a thing where the lava comes out? Yeah. Yeah. All it is, is a, is a crack in the ground. So it could be a fracture in the ground. So, um, literally just a hole and it, from that hole will come the, the, uh, the magma in the form of lava. And that's what, that's what it will start from. So, Oftentimes, a volcano during its earliest stages will be a fairly inconspicuous and not very scary looking thing.
0: Ah, uh, okay, wait. <laughs> so what are like, okay, so that every volcano has a vent.
1: Mm-hmm. They all started off from a very small crack in the ground where magma initially comes out.
0: Is there any other like key features that every single volcano has?
1: Um... No, that's a very good question. And the reason that all volcanoes are different is because all volcanoes are forming by fundamentally slightly different processes. So some volcanoes are being formed by lavas which are being explosively thrown out. And that's, again, the mental image you probably have of most volcanoes, right, is there's a big bang and lavas flying everywhere. But not all volcanoes are like that. Some volcanoes are actually um, more what we call effusive. So they are Expelling lava, but the lava's coming out quite gently without all the bangs and whistles we normally think of. And because of that, volcanoes all are different shapes, different sizes, they're different colors. <laughs> they have quite a lot of character.
0: So I thought that I remembered my seventh grade Earth Science teacher whose name was Mrs. Holzmeier. Um I thought I remember her saying that there was maybe like three main types or something. But also, maybe she said there were six and I just totally fucked up. But is there any like main, is there any like main volcano types?
1: Yeah, so we, so two of the main volcano types that you'll probably be most familiar with, one volcano called a shield volcano. So these are volcanoes which are very um, low relief. So they're not very tall and they're very broad. Hence the name shields because they're like a, a warrior's shield. So that's where the name comes from.
0: Is that like a lot of like the Hawaiian ones that like are slow and like you know ooze like wide or whatever?
1: Yeah. So, but yes. Yeah, so some of those, some of those uh, probably started off as, as shield volcanoes. so are quite broad, um, and they're associated with lavas which are quite runny. So they're not very sticky. So these are runny lavas which, when they come out, they spread out and give the volcano its very broad, low relief shape. But then some of the other volcanoes are what we call strato volcanoes. And strata volcanoes, are, yeah, you might really, yes, you, you, you remember this, Mrs. Uh, Holzmeier will be very pleased with you.
0: Tell <laughs> me, uh, what's the strata? Is
1: that the one that we classically think of, more pyramid-y? Exactly. And that's formed by not simply just lava being expelled from the volcano, but also ash and, and pumice and, and other kind of um, what we call pyroclasts. And so they are bits <sighs> of fragmented magma which form these pumice and these ash clasts. So if you have... You know, times where you've got lava coming out, times where you've got these more volcanic, uh, kind of explosive eruptions, that's what builds up this Strata volcano. So, if you were to slice a stratovolcano in half, imagine you could cut it in half, you would see these beautiful, varying layers of these, which are recording these different types of eruptions.
0: So, what's those volcanoes where it's like a big ass ring? Like, it's like oh. a big ass ring in the middle. Oh, so that's when you have
1: a, something called a caldera. So a, a caldera is formed... Yeah, exactly. You, you know more about this than me. Uh, yeah, a caldera is formed... Um, well, you get different types of calderas. So again, if I asked you to draw a picture of a volcano, you would draw a triangle, right? But what you might also draw at the top is a little depression, a little dip, <laughs> a little hole at the top. <laughs> yep, yep, And that is what we call a caldera. So that is the hole at the top of the volcano and sometimes those holes are formed because, obviously, as you push lava out of the volcano, the lid at the top of the volcano collapses inwards in itself. So that's what gives you the dimple on the top of the volcano.
0: Okay, I'm not a good artist at all. But is there like another or like? Well, no, I can't show you. I'm too embarrassed. So, it's just imagine a, a bubble letter z- zero. Just like, I'm like, yeah. is that so? Is that is that like a strata volcano that completely collapsed? And is that a different kind of volcano? And can that still erupt?
1: No, no, no. So, it's um, there's different stages of collapse of volcanoes in these calderas. So, sometimes you just get a small caldera at the top of the volcano associated with one or two big eruptions. Sometimes, when you have something like a Pinatubo, so one of the largest documented. Ever volcanic eruptions, the volcano basically blows itself apart. It's so explosive, it rips the top off, it rips the sides off, and actually you're left with something which doesn't almost even look like a volcano because you've just completely obliterated and that's like a basically a big hole in the ground now. So you've gone from having a triangular shaped volcano to just complete catastrophe.
0: Do you remember that volcano that like I feel like it exploded like maybe like right before the pandemic started in New Zealand and some people went missing and stuff? <laughs> so I, feel like the, I feel like I feel like I saw a video of that that was giving me major like gigantic skinny caldera vibes like before the eruption
1: yeah so in in Thackeray, so that was the volcanic eruption, which was um kind of the end of two thousand and nineteen I think it was and that was that's a, that was a big volcanic island offshore new zealand and and I mean that already had a big hole in the side from a number of early eruptions, and in fact it was that hole in the side which kind of gave access for tourists to go and visit that volcano. The eruption itself in Thackeray didn't necessarily blow any more out of the side of that volcano. It didn't make the caldera any bigger, but it was part of the process that leads to those calderas forming in, in those volcanoes. So that was a very catastrophic eruption, which led to a number of a number of deaths.
0: So, okay, so basically there's shield strata. So is there like a standard like height or width of a volcano, or are they extremely diverse? So
1: volcanoes don't come in. A one size fits all because they are all generated in different ways and they form in different places. They come in different shapes and sizes and obviously they're different ages, of course. So if you have a very young volcano, which is, you know, the youngest volcano on Earth, probably some people argue in Western Mexico started in 1943. Um, so that's like, How cute. you cute. Know, you it's know, so like a little baby volcano. And that's, you know, not very big at all.
0: How big is it? Like, is it just like a, like a one-story building or is it like gigantic?
1: No, no, no. It's a one-story building sort of size. That thing's been going for about 80 years or so. So that's a pocket volcano. Um, then we could go up to something like um, Mount Etna, which is uh, in uh, Sicily, in Italy. That's about 350,000 years old. So considerably older than the volcano in Western Mexico. And that's about 3,000, 4,000 three and a half thousand meters high, right? So that's quite a a big volcano. So it depends on the age. The longer it goes, the bigger it is.
0: So and then is that the only way that you can tell the age? It's just like all based off of the height or like how big it is, right?
1: No, no, no. So one thing geologists do is we don't just look at the shape and size of the volcano. We can actually get the rock samples themselves from the volcano. We can use a range of techniques to work out directly the age of those rocks using a a process called radiometric dating
0: Ooh. okay so like do you how many this is like not. this just came to me how many like active volcanoes are there right now
1: oh so my it's a good question the, the, the estimates that every day there's probably about 40 volcanoes erupting on earth every day really
0: <laughs> um is there this is another really <laughs> random one is there any is there any in britain in like the united kingdom
1: Erupting
0: or just like existing
1: active. No, there's not. It's slightly disappointing for a geologist not to live somewhere where there's a vol- active volcano. We have lots of ancient volcanoes.
0: I was going to say, because, like, did you see that show Outlander? No, I didn't actually. It's kind of sexy, but, um, the, uh, well, except for some parts, it's also (laughs) devastating. But, um, but like, there's a lot of like hills up there. So like, could there be like a volcano in like Scotland? Like there's like a little bet and no one's even like found it and
1: it could explode or probably not. In a Hollywood movie, I think there probably is one waiting to happen.
0: So there's probably not one in Scotland?
1: Not active. No. We've got lots of ancient volcanoes that were active millions of years ago in the UK, but we don't have anything which is actively developing now, unfortunately.
0: So um where are like where are they the most common? And I think I have a pre-guess. But in an Gone effort there. to not is it the Ring of Fire?
1: So the Ring of Fire, congratulations. You've passed the second class. <laughs> Yeah, the ring of fire is uh, is a term that we use to describe uh, a zone of intense volcanic activity and earthquakes around the edge of the Pacific. So this is down the um, western seaboard of the US, down um, the Chilean coastline, um, especially of, uh, of, of South America and then all the way to Japan and China and, and so on. And, and this is an area of very intense volcanic activity because it's an area where the plates of the Earth's crust are, are clashing together and melting. So that's why we have lots of volcanoes there. So, yeah, pound for pound, there's a lot of volcanoes there. Is it the most volcanic place in terms of volcanoes per square meter? It's perhaps not, right? (gasps) Because that's a huge area around the Pacific.
0: What's the most per square meter?
1: Oh, the most per square meter, Jonathan. Um, I want to say somewhere like the East African Rift. So in Eastern Africa, so... Coming down through the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia.
0: Ooh, 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 yeah, because Madagascar, <laughs>
1: she's going away, she's like floating out. Exactly, yeah, so where we've got stretching of the East African plate, there's loads and loads of volcanoes there. And so you can go to somewhere like Democratic Republic of Congo, so where I visited a few years ago, and there are thousands of volcanic vents Everywhere, like in an area which is, you know, a few hundreds of square kilometers in size, but there's just volcanoes everywhere there of all varying shapes and sizes.
0: And there was no more babier volcanoes there than there was in that Western Mexico? There was none that were even younger?
1: No, um, some of them are very young, young, probably hundreds to thousands of years old, Mm. but nothing as recent as, say, 80 years old. We often get very fixated as well in looking at volcanoes on the Earth's surface, there are lots of volcanoes under the sea. Okay, wait, I'm not ready for that question yet. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Could, okay, so wait. what about this? What if, like, you know, you're Chris Jackson. You are just, like, spelunking in East Africa looking for, like, volcanic activity. Yeah. If you were there with, like, 20 other scientists or something, and you were just, like, well, this is me flipping my hair while looking for a volcano. You might not do that. <laughs> um. What, if, like, how... Can someone discover a brand new one? Like, how did that guy in, or that lady or maybe that non-binary geologist find the one in, in West Mexico? Like, how do you get to be like, this is the, it's new. Like, you just find the hole in the in the lava. But, but,
1: but, but it wasn't a geologist who found it. It was the was indigenous it? people living there uh, who one day saw lava coming out of the earth's surface and building a volcano in front of their eyes. So this is the... This is like the magic of volcanoes, volcanology and geology in general. It's happening all around us. And it doesn't, you know, it won't take an expert to realize that there's a volcano building in your back garden because everybody would know what it's like.
0: So the chances of you seeing the first eruption like are probably like it'll probably just be someone like living there. Probably.
1: Exactly. It's as likely to be somebody who's, who's nearby or flying a plane or on a boat and they see something happening in the ocean and then they report it. And then it's documented as being a volcano after the fact. So, so I guess I'm going to break your heart here. We don't really have volcano hunters.
0: Unless, unless, (laughs) much like in Dante's Peak, when it comes back around, where maybe you were doing a study and like some gorgeous female mayor of that town was like, you know, something, something, maybe you could, you maybe, I don't know. So wait, but to the unexpected places question. So a lot of the unexpected places are, that's like underground,
1: yeah, yeah. So a lot of them are underwater. And obviously, mm. underwater volcanoes are much harder to see them being born, essentially. Are those still called volcanoes? volcanoes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Submarine volcanoes, we call them. Yep. Yeah. And we need to have, like, to, to discover submarine volcanoes, we obviously need to use things other than our eyes.
0: I don't want to go down there. It's a little scary. Have you ever
1: gone <laughs> under, have you ever gone
0: on one of those submarines?
1: You know what, though? I'd love to go in a submersible where you're going with, like, one other person for, like, a few hours. That sounds awesome.
0: I interviewed someone who did. Um, They were the first female astronaut to go to space and go to the deepest part in the ocean in one of those things. She's major. Yes, Kathy Sullivan. So could it be that, like, you know how, like, the Cenotes in eastern Mexico, like, on the Yucatan, you know? Mm -hmm. Could it? Like, could there be like an underground volcano? But it's like literally underneath like other rock, and like, could we be on top of an underground volcano right the fuck now in Texas? That's uh, the question.
1: <laughs> Maybe Texas needs it, right? Um,
0: <laughs> I'm here. We're trying to <laughs> fix it, I, Queen. Give I, me a I, I minute.
1: Lived, I, li- I lived in Austin. I lived in Austin, right? So I know. I have total. I, I lived in. I lived in Hyde Park. So I, I. So could there be
0: like an underground one that's about to blow up a major city?
1: So, so, yes, I'm going to say, <laughs> in a very cautious way, in parts of the Earth, there is areas of molten or semi-molten rock which, given the right conditions, could erupt. Now, to your question as to whether that particular magma chamber, as we like to call them, <laughs> is present under Austin, Texas it's unlikely. We'd probably have a series of um, uh, signs from uh, gases coming out in downtown Austin, which would be rich in certain gases that are produced by volcanoes. We might expect lots of earthquakes in Austin. We might even have images of the subsurface of Austin telling us it's there. So in this particular case, maybe not, but there are certain areas on Earth where we have all of those signals telling us that there are volcanoes present. So there are there's the promise of volcanoes in many parts of the world um, because of the geological conditions in which those those places are, like Iceland, La Palma. You may have seen in uh, the, the, the Spanish island as well, which is erupting right now. It is. Yeah, La Palma's erupting. It started a few weeks ago. Um, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> it's 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 been erupting at incredibly high rates. Um, it's built a new bit of the island, the lava's flowed into the sea, so it's actually built, it's actually making the island larger as we speak. It's it's a really incredible thing.
0: And is that a shield volcano or a strata volcano?
1: Um I think La Palma would be what we would call an island volcano. So I think it's probably a stratovolcano. It's quite it's quite tall for how big it is. You know, it's quite a pointy a pointy island. Um
0: okay, so which leads me to my next question. Hard-hitting question number three. What
1: is a volcanic eruption? (sighs) Oh, no, it's a good... Yeah, so a volcanic eruption is probably best described as um, the time when the conditions allow for the magma to come out at the Earth's surface, right? So like I said, there's always magma, probably molten rock underneath the Earth's surface somewhere on Earth. And what we need are the conditions for that magma to be able to break through those overlying rocks the pressure in that magma chamber to be high enough to break through those rocks and to be expelled at the Earth's surface. And so that's what a volcanic eruption is. And to to make that magma pressurized enough, one thing we can do is make it rise up. So if magma rises through the Earth's subsurface, the pressure decreases, that allows the gases to grow. Underneath it? Yep, within the magma. The, the gas has got magma in. The, the the magma starts to expand. And if you start to expand it like a balloon, it pops. Ugh. So think about that. You've got the magma's rising up. The bubbles are getting bigger. Eventually, the rocks above them aren't strong enough to actually keep the magma in. And it just shatters. And that's when you get the lid blown off and you get lava being expelled from volcanoes.
0: So is there different types of eruptions? Like would a shield volcano make a different eruption than
1: a strata? Yeah, yeah. So some, so some volcanoes actually um, are associated with very runny lava. So this is lava. Imagine it's like, uh, let's say it's just like running like water. So it's not very rich in gas and it's quite runny. That will just ooze out.
0: And there's some lava that's like that or, ma- or wait, lava is when it yeah. comes out, right?
1: Lava is when it comes out, Magmas when it's underneath the Earth's surface. So there's some that's
0: literally like water consistency.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some lava which can flow at... Um, 50, 60, 70 kilometres per hour? No. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's some lava where um, the stickiness is so low, and the term we use as a geologist is viscosity. The stickiness, uh, viscous. uh, The viscosity is so low, it flows like water. So that lava runs very quickly. And, and, And those sorts of volcanoes that produce that sort of lava are sometimes less likely to have these really catastrophic energetic eruptions where we see lots of material being blown out the top. At the other end of the scale there, we have these very viscous, sticky lavas. And if you think about those, those things are very rich in gas. They're also mm-hmm. contained in very, very strong rocks. So they build up immense pressures before they um, erupt. And when they do, they are often, uh, it's often a bigger bang.
0: So the thing that makes it more viscous is the amount of gas.
1: One thing is the amount of gas. Another really important control is the amount of silica. When we have large amounts of silica, we have very, very sticky lavas. And when we have very low amounts of silica, we have these very, very runny lavas. And when you say silica, is that like salt? No so silica like you've got um, like silicon you'd have in uh, your electronic devices uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah, so things that you have on your watch that make it work. so just silicon that we have for everyday use we have silica, which is the chemical element, which is what um, is a is very common in those in some of those lavas
0: Interest. okay <laughs> so how long can a, can an eruption be like
1: an hour or like a month or like a year? Yeah, so volcanoes volcanoes have different periods of eruption. So some of them uh, can go on for years and years and years and decades. And actually, it's actually quite hard to tell when a volcano stops erupting. Take Stromboli, for example, north of Sicily in Italy. um, That erupts every 7 to 16 minutes. Oh, wow. So that thing is continuously popping. It's continuously exploding small um, what we call strombolian um, eruptions so we have these small eruptions other volcanoes maybe are inactive for 50 or 100 500 years and then they may have a very large eruption or a very small one and so it's quite hard to predict when volcanoes both start and end erupting but also how long it might go on for as well
0: and then some of like the warning that people would potentially have for a volcano is kind of like what you would mentioned before, like maybe you'd have a slight like tremors, potentially a yep. bigger earthquake. You might see like steam coming up from something.
1: Yeah, so the the, the, the magma rising up through the, vol- through the volcano itself and uh, underground uh, triggers a number of different um, processes. So one is earthquakes, and that's because the magma is forcing its way through brittle rocks. And when those brittle rocks snap, they pop and they release energy in the form of an earthquake. Sometimes as the magma rises up, like I said earlier on, the gases within the magma actually start to come out of the magma. So at the Earth's surface, we'll see lots of gas coming out. And we might not be able to see it with the naked eye, but we'll see higher fluxes, we say, of carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide. The smell of rotten eggs (laughs) might become Mm. more apparent ahead of an eruption, for example. So there are a number of indirect observations as geologists we try and make to try and predict when a volcano will erupt, where, and also how big that eruption might be.
0: Okay, so speaking of sizes, do eruptions have like a, you know, like F1, F2, F3, F4, Helen Hunt, Twister, or is there like a, you know, like, is there like a rating scale for like, you know, a Richter scale for eruptions?
1: Yeah, there is a scale for eruptions. Uh, There's a scale for volcanic eruptions, which I think goes up to 10 i'm wondering whether it's one of those scales which like we're going to keep redefining because eventually we'll have a bigger bang but we have a scale um so some of the largest and most catastrophic eruptions would be on the scale which are from seven to eight to nine um in terms of the the energy released and this is a really important point to make it the the hazard posed by volcano is not simply how big the eruption is it's also where the eruption happens and at what time of day so you could have a very big volcanic eruption happen very far away from where anybody's living. And that volcano may not be as dangerous as a much smaller eruption happening in a very populated area.
0: And sorry, this is like 18 questions in a row, but it just came to me. Because you know how like in that mass extinction, there was like those ancient volcanoes that all yeah, erupted yeah. at the same time yeah, and then there was yeah, all yeah. the ash. Yeah. Is that going to happen again maybe? Like how big would it have to be for us to not have sun for like a year?
1: So, that's a very, very good question. Let's go back to the first kind of the kind of first part of that question. So, the, the eruptions which led to has been suggested has led to the extinction of uh, some dinosaur species. What was interesting about those eruptions is they weren't particularly catastrophic in terms of the bang. They just went on for a very, very long time, and they were also very, very rich in uh, carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide. So, these were volcanoes which were not particularly catastrophic in the sense that they were a big bang, they just went on for a long time. And that's why with the longer term changes they made to the atmosphere and the climate led to the distinct distinction, the the, the extinction of, of some dinosaurs. How do you guys know that? How do we know that? Like how do you know um, that they were really long eruptions? So there's just like a shit ton of rock. <laughs> So so the Deccan Traps is the eruption we're referring to here, which is uh, in in, in India. So the Deccan Traps just cover a huge amount of area. They're just incredibly thick. We have ages for those rocks, so we know exactly sort of the duration over which those rocks were in place. So we know the duration and volume of those eruptions. So geologists have done a lot of work to try and look at the type of eruption that was that led to potentially the extinction of certain species of dinosaurs. And what's very long? Tends to probably, tends to... Thousands of years of, of eruptions uh, in that case.
0: So, in that like mass extinction, was there probably like like ash in the atmosphere, like to where there was no sun for like years and years, or was it like a little bit?
1: In that particular case, as I understand it, it wasn't necessarily the ash in the atmosphere; it was the gases that were the most. You mm. know, so it was a longer term issue, right? So it wasn't that like the sun was blotted out next Tuesday by this eruption. It was that there was a longer term term we say, perturbation, change in the Earth's climate, which eventually led to um, conditions that weren't conducive to life. Now, something like Mount St. Helens or Pinatubo, which were these very big, relatively ash-rich eruptions, it is those volcanoes which, yes, next year, after an eruption of that size, you will get a a, a slight cooling, actually, of the Earth's climate because you are, as you say, blocking out the sun. So they're, they're very... Hugely different timescales, hugely different types of volcanic eruption with hugely different impacts on life on Earth.
0: Okay, so let's talk about like the biggest ones fucking ever. Uh, Was Mount St. Helens the biggest one ever or was that Pinatubo?
1: So something like Pinatubo is 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 bigger, or Krakatoa as well is another volcanic eruption. Um, they were bigger simply by the the, the 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 estimated energy that was released from those eruptions. I mean, Mount St Helens was was big, but it's also just super famous. It's super famous partly because it happened in the US, and it has this this history of it being relatively well documented. You know, there was. Um, And there's a visitor center there, you know, and it's in a very well-populated part of the Earth near, you know, Seattle, Portland. So there's a lot of press around it, but it's not necessarily the biggest. It was an an incredibly important volcanic eruption in terms of our understanding of how volcanoes work as geologists and our understanding of hazards to people, but it wasn't the biggest. So something like Krakatoa or Pinatubo, the energy released in those was just substantially larger, orders of magnitude greater than Mount St. Helens. Where was Krakatoa? Krakatoa was in uh, Indonesia. The eruption in Krakatoa happened in 1883. So, you know, way over 100 years ago. Um, and what's interesting about some of these older eruptions like Krakatoa is a lot of the records of those volcanic eruptions are like written records or, or 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 visual records by in that case islanders, right? So people who witnessed firsthand the immediate effects of that eruption. Fast forward 130, 140 years to the present day and we have much of better technologies for remotely monitoring those volcanoes and characterizing those volcanic eruptions so even if we weren't there we'd have satellites which would be able to tell us sort of how big they were what was released from them how much was released from those in forms of gases as well
0: um okay so then like uh, uh, do we know how many people like died in that one or like mountain hells like which eruption killed the most people was it pompeii
1: oh that's a very good question
0: Kind so of a dark somewhat,
1: question. No, it's a very important question. And I think if you look at something like Mount St. Helens, the number of fatalities in Mount St. Helens eruption was actually quite small because there was a series of warning signals which allowed a large part of that area to be evacuated. You know, there was a few people who refused to leave and they died in the ensuing pyroclastic flow, which came from that volcano, the 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 kind of ash uh, fall. Um so in that case, the people were quite well prepared for that. I think somewhere like Krakatoa in eighteen eighty-three, where the warning signals, even if they were known, probably would have been less we were less able to communicate those to the local populations that as significantly more people died. But it is a very good question as to how many people um died in that. So in the eruption in Krakatoa in, in eighteen eighty-three, there was an estimated thirty-six thousand people died as a function, not just of the eruption itself, but also the um, ensuing tsunami. So there was Mm. a, you know, there was a, a, what you would refer to as a tidal wave, sort of incorrectly, but the wave of water, which was generated by the eruption, which then inundated land and killed people.
0: Oh, was that like the biggest tsunami ever? Because the volcano explosion
1: was so big? No, I don't think the tsunamis being triggered by these volcanic eruptions are particularly big, but they don't need to be. You can be talking about wave heights of a few meters Right. And if you've got a very low lying coastline, four or five meters will get you 20 kilometers inland very quickly. Okay,
0: but I feel like you like British slash like European people who use meters like you just throw around meters like it's no thing. Three meters is like (laughs) nine feet tall. That is tall as fuck. Like you turn around and you see like or a four or five because isn't three meters like isn't that three or isn't a meter three feet? Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Five times three is 15 feet. If you turn around and you look up and there is a wave 15 feet tall, you are fucked. And (laughs) also along with being fucked... Can you survive a pyroclastic flow or are you just fucked? Like there is no fire blanket strong enough to get you through that.
1: There's nothing that strikes fear into the hearts of geologists and volcanologists more than pyroclastic flows.
0: So can you tell people what a pyroclastic (laughs) flow is? Because I think I know it from Dante's Peak or from like something else. But can you tell people who don't? Or no, maybe it's from Pompeii.
1: You need to put the the link to Dante's Peak in the show notes. (laughs) I know it's true. It's really true. But what is
0: a Pyroclastic flow, and is there one? Well, no. I have to ask that first. What's a pyroclastic yeah. flow?
1: So pyroclastic flow is um, generated when a volcano is erupting, and the the kind of the, the the material being expelled from that volcano is carried high into the atmosphere. Sometimes a few tens of miles. It's it can be this giant column of ash. Now, at some point, the amount of the flux of material coming out that volcano is, and the energy coming out of that volcano is not enough to keep all that material up. So that big column collapses back down. And as that column collapses back down, it flows down the sides of the volcano. That's what a pyroclastic flow is. It's the material, the gases, the bits of rock, which previously was shot up into the Earth's atmosphere, which no longer can be kept up. And they come racing down very quickly the sides of the volcano. By very quickly, I'm talking tens to maybe a hundred miles an hour or more. We're talking about temperatures of a few hundred degrees Celsius, and, and we're talking about a flow which contains boulders of considerable size, house size boulders, maybe car-sized boulders. And on top of that, the cherry on the cake is these pyroclastic flows are just full of very, very noxious gases as well.
0: So if you were going to survive a pyroclastic flow, you would have to have like a Chernobyl type, like limestone sarcophagus, and like a gas mask, and like and like, gas mask might
1: help. (laughs) Has anyone
0: ever survived one, or has anyone ever been on like the edge of one and survived, or could you like outrun one? Like if you were like on the side of a volcano and you saw that it fucking like, like you've got like a column going up, do you have enough time to like get in your car and go like 150 mm -hmm. miles? like down the fucking like road to get away <laughs> from the flow? Or can you even see it? Or is it just yeah? yeah.
1: No, no, no. You'd, you'd have a chance. I think, so have you've seen Jurassic Park Lost World, you know, there's a bit, I think, in there where the volcano erupts and all the dinosaurs are running away and they're driving away in some 4 by 4 And uh, lots of volcanologists and geologists just laugh at that because it's it's implausible. I mean, if you saw that pyroclastic flow coming to you from 10 kilometres away, because quite frankly, you shouldn't be that close to the volcano in, in many in many cases, you probably do have enough time to at least get away or to at least seek shelter. Because obviously, as the pyroclastic flow flows away from the volcano, it slows down and cools down. So the further you are away from there, the better chance you have of firstly having the time to seek shelter, but also if you're caught out in this big plume that's billowing around you, it won't be moving too quickly, it won't be too hot, and it won't be too gassy. Um, So to survive it, what you really need to do is seek shelter. You need to try and hide underground, or if you couldn't, you could hide behind a wall, whatever um, would afford you some protection. But as we know from the eruption of Pompeii in 79 AD, you know, if you're too close to the eruption and that that pyroclastic flow is still very hot and fast and gassy. You can hide underground, and you will still get buried underneath all the ash and and, and choke on the ash. Because
0: that happened, like that's yeah. like where they find the people, like underneath yes, Pompeii, exactly. still like you know perfectly Did, Presumed, you, yeah. I, I know that you're a geologist and not necessarily a Pompeii historian, but have you ever heard of any stories from someone surviving that pyroclastic flow? Is there ever like a cute little story of like we were with our horse, but an Italian, <laughs> and we like totally outran it because we were far enough away.
1: Yeah, there's, there's, there's people who were rescued from Pompeii and from Herculaneum. So there was, a, there was a boat, I think, sent from across the Bay of Naples that went across and rescued some people who'd managed to make it to the, the coastline. Um, so the, the Italian military went and, and, and saved people from there. And then, incredibly, again, we go back to this issue of the oral history of volcanic eruptions. There we have Pliny the Younger who provided this written report of Vesuvius erupting in that case. But we didn't have the internet. We mm-hmm. didn't have mobile phones to video this. We, we, we really struggled to catalogue what happened during the eruption and what the impacts were on life and who survived and what their written testimony was, was of how they survived it. So your question is a very good one, but we kind of struggled to answer it because we don't have the same written records or the same documentation we have present day where everything's over-documented.
0: Did any of the people who refused to leave Mount St. Helens, did any of them outrun the pyroclastic flow?
1: No, the only person I think was the the geologist, Johnson, uh, who there's a ridge next to Mount St. Helens called Johnson Ridge. And he was a a geoscientist, I think, working for the United States Geological Survey, USGS. And and he stayed and and he witnessed the the eruption and, and, and photographed bits of it. But he died in that. So... He did?
0: I think I saw those pictures. It's like coming towards him.
1: Yes. So the very famous pictures from Mount St. Helens were taken from there and um And it's a very sad story, you know, but you know, very committed scientists trying to collect data because it's not just fascinating, it's also important and, and placing themselves in harm's way. Deva. So <laughs> is there ever um
0: is there Okay, can a shield volcano have a pyroclastic flow? Because it's
1: like maybe not. No, because it's got like more of that like
0: one like runny lava.
1: Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think you probably get. You might get small pyroclastic flows, but it wouldn't be one of the characteristic types of behavior you'd expect from that type of volcano. You'd be expecting these really big, vigorous pyroclastic flows to come from these volcanoes, which are capable of blowing their lids off. Right, capable of blowing out lots and lots of material into the atmosphere, which then collapses back down on itself.
0: Has there ever been a gigantic strata eruption that had the big column, but then didn't make a pyroclastic flow?
1: Ooh. I don't know. I don't know, actually. I mean, I can imagine there are... Yeah, I don't actually know the answer to that. Like maybe it was like thick, but
0: it was thick for some other reason and it wasn't that gassy, so it didn't get that hot or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of um, the dangers posed by paraclastic flows relate to the atmospheric conditions at the time of the eruption. So imagine you have this big column of ash coming out of a volcano. If the if the wind speeds in the upper atmosphere are, or in the, in the lower atmosphere are, are very high, they can carry that material away. And actually that material then has less gravitational potential. And by that, I mean it's less heavy. (laughs) It, It won't collapse down because you're basically sucking that material away from that tower
0: or if maybe there was like it just so happened to like erupt like in a rainstorm or like around a hurricane or something maybe
1: yeah maybe then you can sort of like dampen down some of it but i just think the the energy coming out those volcanoes and the amount of material the fluxes the rates are so high it's like get fucked with
0: your rainstorm you're (laughs) not gonna do yeah
1: but rain is important though for what happens afterwards so if you do have eruptions during rainstorms, or you have rainstorms immediately after an eruption, that water can mix with the ash to form uh, mud floats. No,
0: I thought you were going to say, like, pumice. Like, I was like, is that how? Is yes. that like, is there, like liquid? Like and then, it gets, and then you can scrub your foot with it?
1: Yeah, sort of. Yeah. So you end up creating a, a, what was something? An exfoliant. <laughs> like a dimply rock. <laughs> exactly. So that's just why all geologists are very good looking. <laughs>
0: So if we were doing like a Miss Universe of top five biggest volcanic eruptions in history and you are the judge. So you don't necessarily have to be right because like you're the judge and you're going to be smarter than all of us because you are a literal fucking geologist. So would the top five be like, what are the top five?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, I would say, uh, goodness, this is a very good question. And it's a bit nerdy. So I think the 2002 eruption in a volcano called Gonga. So this was a volcano that erupted in the Democratic Republic of Congo. An eruption which was kind of, you know, geologically very interesting. But what was very interesting about that volcano was it happened in a very, um, very war-torn area. It was it happened in an area which had lots of factors that compounded the volcanic eruption. So in terms of our learning about volcanic eruptions and the impact on human life and human society. I find that volcano and that eruption in 2002 very interesting because it wasn't the biggest bang, but it, it, I think as a scientist, I find that very kind of exciting and enriching to think about the way our science affects other people. So I'd say that's probably number one. Number two, I would probably say something like maybe Mount St. Helens because for me, um, you know, ha- with that volcano happening when I was a young child, and then it being a a thing that was taught to us very much as I as I grew up, it very much informed um, and 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 infused my my love of geology. Really, I mean, again, a very important volcanic eruption for many different reasons scientifically, but from a personal point of view, that 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 image you talked about, that image of the of the side being blown off Mount St Helens, I mean. Like it's just jaw dropping stuff, and and it, and it is and it is just an you know as, as a scientist to be going into that field, it was it was very important to kind of uh, to witness that, and the third volcano or the third volcanic eruption, I would say is um, and this is a. Again, not very glamorous, but it was the first ever volcanic eruption I saw. <laughs> Which was? So the first volcanic eruption I ever saw was actually at Stromboli, so this volcanic island north of Sicily in Italy. And I think everybody thinks geologists just hang around volcanoes all the time looking at volcanic eruptions or hanging around waiting for earthquakes to happen. And we don't. To so actually see or witness or feel those things as geologists is very rare. But it's incredibly um, stimulating and can be quite scary. But I remember getting the boat out to Stromboli to the island and looking up through the rain clouds as we approached. And suddenly I just saw like a big puff of black kind of ash come out the top. And it was quite dark and you could see an orange glow. And that was my first ever volcanic eruption. And that, Jonathan, was only about three years ago.
0: Ah. Okay, wait. Not to interrupt the question, but I'm do you an remember? Old what man. You're, you're not an old man; you're a gorgeous young soul. But I love old men too. But anyway, but what are your um? What when you said that volcanoes can be different colors? What are like the kookiest volcano colors that we wouldn't think Ooh.
1: of? So there are volcanoes in the northern bit of the East African Rift. So like into Ethiopia. So the northern, northeastern bit of the African continent. And these are volcanoes which produce a certain type of lava called a carbonatite, and they are blue. <laughs> ah! Can you know what's fucking crazy? <laughs> I literally had no idea,
0: but I had this feeling that they were going to be blue, and I don't know why. Yeah. Except for, I thought it was going to be like some like or like like the mixing with the ocean because I'm basic, and I was like, "That's blue." But it's this <laughs> other rock that's so fierce.
1: Um, okay, is there any other colors? Yeah. So you know, most of the classic colors of volcanoes, you know, lavas are just this orange red glow. But one of the really, yeah, uh, carbonatites, the ones that spring to mind as being the most atypical kind of colour for a larva, they they can have this very bluish glow and they look like... um you know, in Aliens, I think where they cut one of the kind of alien eggs open and it sort of oozes out in one of the night scenes. I think it's a bit like that. <laughs> or is it? Is it
0: also kind of like the blue of a flame,
1: or like darker? Than yeah, that? yeah, yeah. It's like a Bunsen, yeah, it's like a Bunsen burner type blue. So really, <sighs> really kind of bright, intense blue color, especially and it, and it's most apparent, obviously, um, at night. Um, you see it.
0: The officials from the Miss Universe uh, Biggest Eruptions in History pageant uh, still need your answer for the fourth and fifth.
1: All right. Okay. Um, so the next one, what would I say? Um, maybe again, uh, the, the the eruption in 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 Fakari, um, Fakari I think, is the way it's pronounced. The New Zealand White Island is the the settlers' name mm-hmm. for that island, but Fakari is the indigenous term. Um, and again, you know, a really interesting volcano, very young volcano. If you think it's a few thousands of years old, but again, it was a volcanic eruption which was not grossly unusual in its behavior. But again, it, it led to a number of fatalities. But what it's led to us questioning is our relationship in terms of tourism with uh, volcanoes. So volcanoes are understandably very um, kind of appealing visually. They're very dramatic. Um, we, In certain parts of the world, if you have a volcano, it's actually financially the basis of your economy, right? You know, it's a, it's a really important reason people come to see where you live but, but factory has really made us think about you know whether you know do we have safety protocols in place do we have do we have license to operate in certain places and, and and you know obviously in New Zealand this is an issue to do with the indigenous communities who have a very different relationship with the volcano above and beyond it simply being a tourist destination
0: so of those four have any of them like erupted again and has climate change created like an effect on frequency or intensity of
1: eruptions? Oh, no. So, um, you know, like Stromboli's erupting all the time. Uh, Nirogongo was 2002, but also erupted uh, early this year as well. So these volcanoes are still turning over. They're still ticking over. The question as to whether climate change is going to impact volcanic behavior, that is a very good one. And it's one that's actively being worked on at the moment. There are some research results which suggest that as we have a warming world, as the Earth gets warmer, we may actually see more melting of the ice sheets and, and, and mountain glaciers. You've heard about that, I'm sure. But as a function of the melting of the ice sheets, what we do is we unload the Earth's crust. We take the weight off. And if we take the weight off the top of the Earth's crust, we can depressurize magma chambers and maybe cause more volcanic activity in certain parts of the world. Let me just stress that. If you don't have an ice sheet, you're not. This isn't going to be a you know a mechanism that's going to be of concern. It's the unloading of the Earth by the the the, the, the kind of thawing of ice and the removal of ice that might cause that. So there are some there are some people looking at the fact that um, the changing climate might impact volcanic behaviour. The more important piece of that puzzle is the fact that volcanic behaviour kind of partly influences the climate, but not to the same degree as we do as humans.
0: So what would it take for us to, like, protect folks against volcanic hazards? Like, is, I mean, uh, like, because there's yeah. tourism, but then there's also people that just, like, live around volcanoes. So, like, what, how can people yeah, protect it's,
1: themselves? It's a really important part of the science we do is whether we can better forecast volcanic eruptions. So can we, can we characterize volcanoes enough that we know that when there's these, eru- these earthquakes or there's this gas comes out, can we then say, next Tuesday, this volcano is going to erupt here? And that, you know, that is kind of the holy grail, if you will, of of volcano science. It's probably, well, it's undoubtedly not achievable because the volcanic behavior is very complicated, but it is just something we need to aspire to. We need to better study volcanoes to see, okay, this volcano erupted, what happened before it did? Mm. And then use those things to then try and understand another volcano and, and its behavior. The problem we have is there's a number of false starts. There's lots of volcanoes that do all the right things, <laughs> but never erupt. So it's a bit like the boy who cried wolf.
0: That was Dante's Peak. That yeah, was happening exactly. with Dante's Peak.
1: Exactly. Because, and, and, it, and the problem's worse, of course, depending on where you are on Earth, because you can keep sending out these warnings to people and they can keep leaving their house and grabbing their DVDs and going to stay with their friends down the road and then come back the week later. And, but in some parts of the world, they can't. Because they don't have anything to pick up or they don't have anywhere to go. So understanding the volcano itself is only as useful as understanding the places in which those volcanoes are found.
0: Your millennial nature did just come out when you said like to grab your DVDs. Oh, dear. I feel like we're I feel like
1: we're. I didn't, I didn't say my mixtape. I know, I feel like,
0: but I feel like it's, I feel like these kids these days are starting to look at you like if you say DVD, they're like, okay, like. Yeah, yeah, that like
1: runs out. Everything's in the cloud, right? Yeah, they're like, you don't need it. Like, you just, you go on
0: the thing and you press it and it's there. It's like these kids these days, but yes.
1: I'm, no, I'm obsessed with you. I was just kidding.
0: So, and I would imagine that like if you are in a country that has like financial hardship or political strife like what you're talking about with what's going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo if you're having yeah. warfare if you're having any like you yeah. know political strife financial stuff I would imagine that it's harder to uh, readily communicate and prepare yeah. your people for an eruption.
1: Exactly you 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 compound the the hazard if you will posed by the volcano with the geopolitical and human hazard of what happens when the volcano erupts.
0: So um based on your accent it seems like you're British yes very. so you were just like minding your own business you were just like a cute little baby boy in Britain and you had these like little glasses and then you were like mommy I want to like
1: I'm into rocks like how did you get into like geology um I I got into geology two ways one is I was just not very good at lots of other things so I was I was not particularly engaged in lots of other bits of work at school and geology just happened to be one of the things that captivated me. And, I, you know, it wasn't like I was just a stellar student and this thing just stood out. It was just, you know, struggling to find kind of enjoyment and engagement in other things. I was studying at school and then geology just for some reason um, just grabbed me. The kind of other reason I got into geology is because I grew up in an area which um, is quite, um, it's kind of up towards the hills in a place called the Peak District, which is in the central part of the UK. And so I spent a lot of time outdoors with my parents um, walking, caravanning, camping. And I think like looking back by osmosis of being in the natural world and spending quite a lot of time outdoors, when geology was floated as being a plausible career and and one bit of a geology career can be spending time outdoors in the natural world, looking at volcanoes and rocks and and minerals and that then drew me in as well was the opportunity to spend time outdoors Looking at the beauty and wonder of, of planet Earth, and um to be paid for that is is super awesome.
0: So, with geology, there's like some geologists who are like, I'm obsessed with geodes, I'm obsessed with rocks, but then there's other geologists who are like, I do volcanoes.
1: Yeah. So I I am so I I I'm a kind of a bit of a hybrid geologist. So I work on lots and lots of different things to do with geology, um, and principally what I'm interested in is the structure and evolution of the Earth. So why does the Earth look like it? does in terms of its shape, but also how do we wind back geological time to try and understand how it's come to look like it does today. Volcanoes are obviously one part of that puzzle, right? Because as the Earth has evolved, volcanic activity has been a really central, fundamental process that's been occurring. So I've been drawn into volcano science or volcanology, if you will, in the last 10 years because I've just been asking these really general questions about why does the earth look like it does? And then um, volcanoes um, are, are part of that puzzle.
0: Well, that's interesting. Okay, so what have been some of like, the most standout moments from your field work? And have you ever been out somewhere and been like, fuck me, I need to get out of here. Like, this is dangerous. Like, the pyroclactic flow, I feel it, but then maybe it didn't <laughs> happen, or maybe it did. Like, like what's been like, the most exciting thing?
1: One of the most exciting places I've been working in recent years is in the uh, Andes, so in the Argentinian Andes, so right on the border with, with Chile. And we were doing a bunch of fieldwork out there, looking at some rocks which were 150 million years old, and it was super nerdy fieldwork, and we were having a great time. Um, we got in some trouble with the local um, police um not through any bad conduct of ours, I should add, but we ended up getting arrested and put in a in a in an Argentine um prison cell in the middle of the Andean mountain belt at about two and a half thousand meters above sea level, and it's about minus ten degrees in the prison cell, and we had our passports taken off us. And you know, as a scientist, as a what do you call it, a humble geologist, you're just sitting there thinking, how did it come to this? <laughs> <laughs> How did it come to that? What happened? How did you, boy, what happened? So, Argentina and many countries rightly have very strict laws around collecting fossils. Fossils are viewed as local, rightly as local artifacts of the natural history, in the same way human remains would be, or cave art or anything, right? That's fine. So, you're not allowed to take fossils away. We have very strict protocols when we do field work, not take fossils away. Somebody in our group picked up a fossil. <laughs> and the police found that fossil Um, and all of us then got thrown under the bus and um, it was all very very painful but you kind of see a situation which looks fairly innocuous just go south very quickly and then you realise at this point you're not in like downtown Manchester in a prison cell kind of chilling out you're actually at two and a half thousand metres in the middle of a mountain range with no (laughs) passports and so
0: (laughs) Was there ever like a different story where you were like, you guys discovered something cool or like saw something cute or like you know, anything else? I had a good
1: time. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, let me try and think of a time when we, when we found something <laughs> which made our jaws drop. Um, oh, it's a very good question. I've been lost of places. I'm trying to think of somewhere where we went, where it was, uh, where we where we did find something very cool. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um yeah, we went to um we did some fieldwork in the Sinai Peninsula, so in Egypt. So, south um southeast of Cairo, so just north of the Red Sea. And we were doing fieldwork out there and it was super super cool. We were chilling with the Bedouin, the local people who live there and they were kind of occasionally coming up to us and we were doing some fieldwork and they were like, "Oh, you know, we've seen this rock round the corner." It's black. And we were like, oh, there's not supposed to be any black rocks here. The rocks here are all supposed to be brown. And they were like, oh, no, no, where we farm our goats, there's some black rocks. And I was thinking, oh, you know, these Bedouin don't know anything. I'm going to go and sort of have a look and see what they're talking about. And we walked around the corner and there was this incredibly huge lava flow deposit from 23 million years ago, which nobody would ever seen because you had to walk down this very complicated set of canyons. And the Bedouin were taking their goats in there, right, every day. And we'd not gone there. And <laughs> we went in. And so we found this ancient lava flow, 23 million years old. We subsequently did a bunch of work. We worked out what the age of the rocks were. But that was just super awesome to have, to find something geologically just fantastic. But then also for it to have come from a really beautiful interaction with really wonderful people. Um, and they did it in this really kind of, oh, come and have a look at these black rocks. And then there's a typical Western, like, these people don't know anything. And then you go there and it's, and it's just amazing.
0: Uh, so you said that you were like outside with your parents and then they like they floated the geology was like a like a literal like career choice is
1: did i hear that part right no no so my my parents were both nurses so they didn't know what the hell a a rock was really but they they were just interested in the natural world they came from the caribbean from jamaica and saint vincent so they sort of had a very different relationship growing up on volcanic islands as as children and um They just wanted me and my brother to spend time outdoors. And I think what they did do is when I just said, I want to do this thing, they didn't stop me, which I think for me growing up as a child, and I don't know about you, but for me, my character, my personality very much needed somebody to allow me to be who I needed to be and to do what I wanted to do. I'd have reacted very poorly to being told to do something else and be somebody else.
0: Um, that's beautiful. I also just, I mean, the name of this podcast is getting curious. I love that, Like a natural curiosity for you, like took you into your literal career. And so I think one question that I have, that's a little bit off is just that like, I think I have a lot of folks listening to the podcast that are obviously curious people. I also think that in the last couple of years, a lot of people are really looking at their like career choices. Like, am I happy? Do I want to do this anymore? Um, I think about Dr. Edith Edgar, who is one of our she's a Holocaust survivor. I love her so much. She said this really incredible thing about when she was wanting to become a psychologist, maybe as a psychiatrist, but regardless, it was a doctor. And she was like 46. And she was like, well, gosh, if I, or however old she was, she's like, well, gosh, if I start now, I'm going to be 50 by the time that I get it. And she had a professor that said to her, Edith, you're going to be 50 anyway. So do you want to be 50 with a doctorate degree or do you want to do it without? Yeah. So what has been for you, if there's someone who's like, maybe has a young person in their life or maybe they're not young, but they're like, I've been obsessed with rocks forever and I don't want to be an accountant anymore. How... And it doesn't even have to be necessarily with, with, um, geology, but what would you say to someone that wanted to get involved in science, wanted to maybe make a career or a life change around science? Do you have any advice as a scientist about what has worked for you?
1: Yeah, I think be curious and seek fulfillment, right? I think, um, the seeking fulfillment pieces, you know, that can be just reading blog posts, reading books, watching documentaries on TV, you know, about geology or about science in general, you know? And you might have to do that alongside your personal life, your busy personal life. You might have to do it alongside your, 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 your career because you're paying the rent, right? You, you, that might be just the reality of it. As a, as a young person or somebody who's older but actually has a career choice you know, available to them, yeah, go and seek it out. Again, use your curiosity to ask questions to find out um, what plausible career choices are out there for you. But start to bring science into your life. And I say that, but scientists in our lives all the time, remember, and we're probably always being curious about what's around us, but actually be more proactive in seeking out answers to those questions and, and, and then see where it takes you. And it, even if it just enriches your life in the evening via watching a documentary on TV, that's as awesome as it is It then becoming your, your future life career goal.
0: Ah okay, so now it's this is my last official question, but I'll have one more after this for you if we've just been remiss if you didn't mention anything. But so if if after this people have been listening to your gorgeous, creamy British accent and they are like, I am butt crazy and live with volcanoes. I started this off, didn't really mind them that much, but now I'm fucking obsessed and I already saw Dante's peak. Where would you direct people to learn more about volcanoes? Like, are you tweeting about volcanoes a lot? Do you post a lot of pictures on the gram about it? Do you follow some volcano people that you're obsessed with? Any favorite movies, books, whatever, lay it on us.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think there's some awesome people on social media who um, tweet about this all the time. Janine Krippner is a very good friend of mine. She tweets a lot of volcanic content. She works with the Smithsonian Institute and the Smithsonian have this very strong... um, group in volcano science so they just post like loads and loads of awesome information about volcanic eruptions today volcanic eruptions in the past they have this amazing art gallery of volcanic eruptions and people doing volcano science in the field so the smithsonian institute is a is a really good landing place i think and janine to to really enrich your life about volcanoes the the crafts as well. They were a, a couple who wrote books about. Um, they were they were probably the closest to volcano chasers. They died in an eruption in Unzen in Japan um, in I think in the eighties. Um, the crafts um, couple, but they wrote books and, and documented volcanic behaviour. So go and look at um, the, the the crafts, uh, K R A F F T, um, and read about their lives and read about. Um, the, the way they talked about volcanoes with indigenous peoples, almost in a spiritual way, they had a they had a they had a, an appreciation of the physicality of volcanoes, but they also saw volcanoes as being much more than simply a big lump of rock out of which lava occasionally comes. And so, I think I think I'd recommend those things to your listeners to, to as a kind of landing point for learning more about volcanoes.
0: And they went to go see a, a volcano in Japan, and they got at the wrong side of the volcano at the wrong time, and they died.
1: They died in a pyroclastic flow, yeah.
0: No! Uh...
1: (laughs) This is what I said. I told you. I told you that the um you know they're, um the 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 one thing that does fear um, the volcan- volcanologists fear more than anything else is is pyroclastic flows.
0: Okay, actually I have one more question. I'm sorry. Um remember that part in Dante's Peak when the grandma sacrifices herself and jumps out of the fucking like that boat because it's like sinking and they're in, there in the- is that geologically possible can a river turn into like a liquefied acid fucking like pyro Plastic flow ass fucking melt your body in half like it did to her.
1: No. Oh, you can get probably quite acidic waters from um, hydrothermal vents, right? So, but that but they're often associated not with the you know the Dante's peak. Oh, it's going to erupt next Tuesday. These are things which are um, which have been forming over a long period of time. So gases have been coming out for a long, long time. This water has been absorbing those gases for a long, long time. Uh, I'm talking like could a Volcano erupt a la Dante's
0: Peak and turn a local creek into (laughs) Into a running (laughs) river of hot acid that would kill your grandma in the way that she died in that movie.
1: I would, I, my, my sense is not, sorry. So, that's probably never happened. No, because this is it. As scientists, we we sort of know what we know, but there's loads more we don't know, right? So, she was just such a pivotal character, and she literally sacrificed herself in that like acid river. That scene
0: really stuck with me.
1: I know. Well, this is probably what puts people off volcanology.
0: Do you remember that scene, right? That, you know, with her little gray (laughs) haircut.
1: I think she isn't it. The, isn't, it the, isn't it? Is it? its is it sinking? It's her mother-in-law, the honey. Oh
0: well, yeah. uh, well, I really know this movie too well. It's the mayor's yeah. mother-in-law. It's like her yeah. ex-husband's mom, and they go up to get her, but she doesn't want to evacuate, and then yeah. it's too fucking late, and then it's erupting, and then they have the kids and the mom and Pierce. They jump in the <laughs> boat, but honey, what they don't know is that creed turned into like hot lava Ascent. water. Yes, and then she has to, <laughs> and then they're almost to the bank, but it's totally fucking sinking. So she jumps out of the boat, and then like. <laughs> walks them onto the bank, and they're like, no, no, and then she's like, uh, and then she's all burnt, and it's just devastating.
1: I know, it is It is a pivotal moment in volcano science and volcano films, I think, is, uh, um, but she making was a mother-in-law, things right? that are impo-
0: Yeah, like, making things that are impossible, like, making yeah, things that, like,
1: aren't. Yeah, mother-in-laws are never popular, so maybe it was the right character to go. I'm not sure. It's true, but that <laughs> is annoying when there's, like, things that just, like, aren't real, like, in, like, I know, you know. I know, but you know what, as a scientist, I can admit this to you now, I think if we made films just about science, they'd be quite dull because large parts of science are not that exciting. So we are faced with a challenge of how do we portray the science realistically so that we engage people without them making them completely (laughs) ridiculous. And that is a very, you know, I've made a few TV programs and given talks about this, like, you know, it is a very fine line to tread in terms of engaging people with a topic and then just boring them out of their minds.
0: Well, I mean, I this has been working for me. I, I guess that was creative of them. They basically turned like a river into like a liquid pyroclastic flow, which is like interesting. Chris Jackson, is there anything that you would be remiss as a literal geologist that we did not cover today about volcanoes? I would also tell you that next time a big volcano eruption happens, you're going to have to come back and be like an emergency guest on Getting Curious. Um, <laughs> but th- I've just had so much fun learning. I feel like I've learned so much
1: and I've had so much fun. Did would you? Did we miss anything that you mm-hmm. feel we need to mention? No, no, you had a very wide range of, set of questions. So yeah, no, thank you for inviting me on. It's been absolutely uh, fantastic. Yeah.
0: And we're going to put the links to your socials too on the episode if uh, if people want to follow, because we are just obsessed and you all, you obviously on this podcast, you can't see, but honey, Chris Jackson is everything. <laughs> Stunning Brit, <laughs> like just the voice, the socials must follow. Chris, thank you so much for everything. We appreciate you so much.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me on, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Professor Chris Jackson. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim.